Okay, here we are. It is episode 517 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your writer, host, and producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio and welcome to the band chairman of the boards they are a surf band based out of toronto we are currently listening to their song tango tangle you can find it on their album surf in the apocalypse i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes but you can go straight to chairman of the boards.bandcamp.com to check them out and that's chairman as in there's more than one so chairman of the boards.bandcamp.com or you can go straight to their website chairman of the boards.ca check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast this week on the show i dove back into the vault i went back into my hard drive and found an old recording that i did with scott and tracy morris from the disney indiana podcast some of you may remember that a while back scott and i did the plan nine by nine podcast where we looked at the movie plan nine from outer space in nine minute chunks and during the course of that podcast we recorded a special episode with tracy talking about the film Ed Wood, you know, the Tim Burton film starring Johnny Depp. It's a more recent film than what we normally cover here on the show. However, because of the subject matter, I think it fits. Plus, it's been taking up space on my hard drive. Why am I going to sit on it? I need to get it out to you guys and gals. So that's what you're going to hear this week on the show. And of course, Kenny has his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, and it's Ed Wood flavored. What is not Ed Wood flavored, but we're not going to hold that against him because, well, there's just really no way to do an Ed Wood. Actually, you know what? An Ed Wood Ultraman would be really, really... Actually, that'd be way too weird. So we're just going to stick with regular Ultraman, episode two of the original series in Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. Before we get into the rest of the show, I want to let you know what's happening this Saturday at the Monster Kid Movie Club over at monsterkidmovie.club or twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. If you head over there on Saturday at 11 a.m., Pacific, that's when the pre-show starts, and at noon, that's when the movies start, you can join us for a free screening of a number of European horror films. We're going to be seeing movies like Terror Creatures from the Grave, Bloody Pit of Horror, M, and a number of other films as well. There's always a live chat. There's a round of the Classic Five, which we didn't play in this episode of Monster Kid Radio because... Well, it was originally intended for the Plan 9x9 podcast, and we didn't do that over there. But we'll be doing that on Saturday, so if you're missing it, make sure you come in for that. I'll be popping in a few times as well for some live chat. It'll be a fun time. Only thing that's going to be missing is you. So make sure you join us. Pop in for the entire day or just pop in once or twice to check out the movies. I'll be posting a schedule no later than Friday morning over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio so you know what movies are showing when. We would love to have you. Okay, let's go ahead and get into the rest of the show. We'll do Mark Matsky, we'll do Kenny, we'll do Ed Wood, right after a word from our advertisers. I'd like to take a second to thank our advertisers, like Stuffed with Character and Stephen D. Sullivan. If you'd like to advertise on this stream, or even the Monster Kid Radio podcast, please reach out to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I'll send you an ad sheet and we can discuss rates. Thanks again. From a world beyond our own come the forces of nature unleashed. Daikaiju attack. 
the serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Terror Creatures from the Grave. Avenge me! I've summoned you! Avenge me! Go back to the dead! In a dreadful night of reckoning, the forces of darkness strike with blood-freezing horror. You're here. Nightmare of diabolical happenings, conceived in a murder-haunted house of blood by the maniac called Geronimus, a dead man with the monstrous power to return from his grave. I tell you, it was my father. I saw him. What are you saying? Can't you see the boat is empty? Look! Look! There's water dripping from the oars. A bone-chilling shocker, inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Terror Creatures from the Grave, starring Barbara Steele. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Shoot the Invader is the title of the second Ultraman episode to air, and what an episode it is. In addition to the introduction of a quintessential Ultraman foe, it also signals that the show is not always going to take itself seriously which is kind of a bold move to make at this very early stage of world-building. Arashi is sent to investigate a UFO detected on radar. He traces the craft to an office building and goes inside after recruiting Hoshino, who stowed away in the car, to post updates on the Science Patrol radio. Unfortunately, Arashi is frozen in place by the ray beam of Baltan, an alien with a cicada-like head and large pincher arms. After Captain Muramatsu suggests dialogue with the aliens, incurring the skepticism of the military, Ide and Hayata attempt to make contact with Baltan. They succeed all too well. The alien takes over Arashi's body, using him as a human speaker to reveal that the Baltan species, which numbering 2.3 billion individuals, shrunk to microscopic size for space travel, are ready to colonize Earth. The one regular-sized Baltan then enlarges to a monstrous size, takes to the skies, and begins blowing up Tokyo, effectively beginning the invasion. Can Ultraman intervene in time? Baltan makes an immediate impression in Shoot the Invader, possessing a number of cloaking abilities and beam weapons. His insectoid appearance is owed to the fact that he was constructed using the Cicada Man costume from Ultra Q's Garamond Strikes Back. 
This episode features one of the most audacious beta capsule transformations in the series. Let's just say there is no room for error. But the most charming element of Shoot the Invader is the segments that bookend it, in which Masanari Nihei, as Ide, completely breaks the fourth wall to explain how he got his black eye. If you're not ready for it, it's a fun surprise and a sign that Ultraman's main objective is to entertain. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. The scene, outer space. The story, destruction of Earth. See Gorath, the most spectacular science shocker ever filmed, surpassing anything in the realm of science fiction to date. See astronauts, satellites, and spaceships operating from South Polar Base. You are actually in every exciting scene. It could happen. It may happen. Warning to every man, woman, and child. Nerve-shattering tension will grip you and hold you spellbound in the most enthralling science fact shocker ever made in scenes never before filmed in limitless outer space. See scientists move the Earth with hydrogen jet power. See the world doomed by a wild invading sun 6,000 times bigger than Earth. See gigantic earthquakes, space collisions, and tidal waves. It's Rondo season. That's right. It's time for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. This is something that's been put on for 19 years. This is the 19th year for the Rondo Awards. What are the Rondo Awards? Well, it's a way to honor the best in classic monster fiction movies, releases, scholarship, fandom. I mean, really, it's all of it. It covers everything classic horror wise and then some head over to rondoaward.com to check out the ballot now when you go look at the ballot you're going to notice something and what you're going to notice is that there's a lot this is a dense ballot even for a year like we had last year there was a lot of material to consider when the ballot was being put together by david over at the classic horror film board and wow the man has done an amazing job putting together not just a ballot but a checklist of all the best stuff that came out last year so first of all before you even consider voting for anything review the entire ballot start making some notes did you see all the movies on the list did you read all the articles all the books you know there's a lot of horror material out there these days for monster kids like us some of it's a little bit more modern some of it's a little bit more new but as david once told me 
to appear on the ballot, these movies and articles and so on need to retain that monster kid spirit. And I think this year you're going to see that, especially when you go and look at Best Multimedia. And I'm not just saying that because Monster Kid Radio is nominated again, but okay, partly because Monster Kid Radio is nominated again for Best Multimedia Site. Now, we did take home the award in 2014, and I've been on the ballot before and ever since. And it's awesome to be considered as Best Multimedia, along with all these other incredible websites and incredible podcasts. I'm friends with a lot of them. They all do incredible work and that I get to hang out with these guys and gals. That's awesome. How do you cast your ballot for the Rondo Awards? Well, it's real easy. It's old school. It's simple. Really, all you got to do is send an email. Send an email to taraco at AOL.com. And that's spelled T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. In the subject, put something about the Rondo Awards. And then in the email itself, just write who you're voting for. You don't have to vote for every single category. In fact, if you only want to vote for one or two, that's fine. If you only want to vote for Monster Kid Radio and Best Multimedia because you want to make sure that my current Rondo Award gets a tag team partner, that's fine too. However, vote for all the categories that you're comfortable voting in. If you haven't seen all the movies or read all the books or whatever, that's fine. You don't have to vote there. And if there's something that didn't make the ballot that you think should have made the ballot, there's a write-in category. You can write in your favorites. Like if you want to write in Stephen D. Sullivan's Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors for best book, you can. Also, pay special attention to the bottom of the list where they're looking for things like Monster Kid of the Year, Monster Kid Hall of Fame, Best Artist, Best Writer, and so on. These are really cool categories. And I've always made a push for people to be entered into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame before we lose them. So if there's anybody doing incredible monster kid work that you'd like to see entered into the Hall of Fame, well, that's where you would put it in right now. So again, email taraco at AOL.com. That is T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. Let them know who your choices are. Have fun voting. And if you know of any other monster kids in your life that might like to have their votes counted, send them over to RondoAward.com. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today, we are reviewing the film Ed Wood, which was made after the Foray period of FM that we examine each week. What I am going to do is go over two Ed Wood films that merited article-length coverage in FM. Both articles have two things in common. They both present a complete synopsis of the film in question and they both include quotes from the dialogue that highlight Ed Wood's incredibly genius writing style. The first film we see is Night of the Ghouls from FM3, which came out in April of 1959. Here's a quote from the film spoken by Criswell. I am Criswell. For many years I have told you the almost unbelievable related to the unreal and showed it to be more than fact. Now I tell you a tale of the threshold people. So astounding that some of you may think. This is a story of those in the twilight time. Once human, now monsters. In a world between the living and the dead. Monsters to be pitied. Monsters to be despised. The other film was Bride of the Monster 
which was in Monster World 5, also known as FM-74, and was later reprinted in FM-131. Listen to this spine-tickling Ed Wood speech, performed by the great Bela Lugosi. Twenty years ago, I was banned from my homeland, parted from my wife and son, never to see them again. Why? Because I jested to use the atom elements for producing super beings, beings of unthinkable strength and size. I was classed as a madman, a charlatan, outlawed in a world of science which previously honored me as a genius. Now, here in this forsaken jungle hell, I have proven that I am all right. Now, Professor Strauski, it is no laughing matter. I have no home. Hunted. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. That I will show the world that I can be its master. I will perfect my own race of people. A race of atomic supermen which will conquer the world. <laughs> For a change of pace, in honor of our guest, Disney superfan Scott Morris, we have a look at a Disney film, which has Wood in the title. Watcher in the Woods was featured in FM 180 from January of 1982. It was a five-page article with 11 photos. Here's the introduction and some production notes, which wrapped around a short synopsis. Imagine that you're standing in front of your mirror, safe in your home, adjusting your clothes and fixing your hair for that big evening out. Suddenly inexplicably, horribly. The image in the mirror is not you, not even of this earth. You are staring at something long dead, and it is beckoning to you. The Watcher in the Woods, a title to conjure with, a title to intrigue, to beguile, a title to bring one's worst fears to life, the fear that lurking just outside of the light is a malevolent, unholy spirit. The worst fears of the Curtis family come to terrible reality in the Walt Disney production of The Watcher in the Woods, a supernatural thriller filmed on location in a gothic mansion in a murky heath in England. The Disney organization has long been known for authenticity and perfection in the field of special effects and animation. They've presented a Fantasia, taken us into the Black Hole, returned us to the Witch Mountain, and given life to the Dragon Slayer. And now, they've pulled out all the stops to make the climax of The Watcher in the Woods a dazzling one. A supporting cast of super actors has been gathered. Betty Davis is a living legend of the film world, having starred in more than 80 films, received two Academy Awards, eight nominations from the Academy, and two of television's Emmys. In 1977, Miss Davis received the American Film Institute's Life Achievement Award. Her portrayal as the tormented Miss Islewood in Watcher in the Woods is her most terrifying role since her landmark performance in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Carol Baker, who plays Helen Curtis, was a premier sex symbol of the 50s and is still as stunning as ever. 
Among her films are Giant, The Carpetbaggers, Harlow, and Station 6 Sahara. David McCallum is best known for his portrayal of super agent Ilya Gryakin in the TV series The Man from UNCLE. David has also appeared in such fantastic films as Frankenstein, The True Story, The Invisible Man, and King Solomon's Treasure. Lynn Holly Johnson, who plays the haunted Jan in Watcher in the Woods, started her career as an ice skater in 1974. She won National Novice Free Skating Silver Medal and later joined the Ice Capades as a featured skater. In 1978, Lynn Hawley began her motion picture career in Ice Castles, and she was recently seen in the latest James Bond epic, For Your Eyes Only. Director John Huff is no stranger to fantastic films, having directed Escape to Witch Mountain, Return from Witch Mountain, The Legend of Hell House, Twins of Evil, and Sudden Terror, among others. The Watcher in the Woods was adapted from the novel of the same name by Florence Ingle Randall, the screenwriters are Brian Clemens, Harry Spaulding, and Rosemary Ann Sisson. No expense has been spared, and plenty of time and care have been taken to ensure that when the Watcher in the Woods and his, her, its secret is revealed in the end, an experience that reaches beyond the grave and even beyond the stars is delivered. The visual concept was designed by Harrison Ellenshaw, the genius who realized many of the mats and special effects of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, The Black Hole, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. The special effects were supervised and executed by Art Krishenk and Bob Brofton. Among Art's credits are Fantastic Voyage and The Black Hole. The special effects wizards utilized the Disney organization's unique ACES system for their work. ACES stands for Automatic Camera Effects System, and it brings computerized precision and clarity to the painstaking work of blending mats, miniatures, and opticals into one startling special effect. Systems like ACES have brought us the Star Wars films, the Black Hole, the Star Trek motion picture, and much more. Thus, if Harrison Ellenshaw, Art Krushenk, and Bob Brofton and ACES have been employed for the Watcher in the Woods climax, you can confidently expect something more than flying tableware and slamming doors. Winged demons and alien terrains are rumored to appear. So watch for The Watcher. It'll be watching for you. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, we will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Something happened in these woods. Something that has never been explained. And it's happening again. Now. Did you hurt yourself? Oh, it's just a little cut. What sort of person are you? Sensitive? You sense things. The past pursues the present like a recurring dream. What began as a game ended when a young girl vanished into thin air. That was my daughter's name. What do you think happened to Karen? I think she's still out there. Karen is trying to come back. What did you see? Not Karen outside there. Don't you understand? It's someone else. 
Only Jan can help Garen. But who's going to help Jan? Betty Davis, Carol Baker, David McCallum, and Lynn Holly Johnson. Whatever happened to my Karen could happen to you. The Watcher in the Woods. Beyond this gate lurks an experience that will touch a fear you never knew you had. <coughs> the legend of Hell House. What did he do to make this house so evil? Murder, vampirism, cannibalism, drug addiction, alcoholism, sadism, mutilation. Naked. Drunk. Fighting. Oh, please get me out of here. I do not accept this. For the sake of your sanity, pray it isn't true. The Legend of Hell House. Starring Pamela Franklin, Roddy McDowell, Clive Revel, Gail Honeycutt. The Legend of Hell House. From 20th Century Fox. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. A nightmare within a nightmare. The coffin opens and terror reaches out from beyond the grave. As the twins of evil evoke the power of vampirism and witchcraft. Twins of evil. They use the satanic power of their bodies to turn men and women into their blood slaves. Twins of evil. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without... Well, shall we begin? We shall. I don't have a clever Criswell-like opening intro for this do you have anything um this is the great and all-knowing scottwell here i know that we are all interested in the podcast for that's what you and i are going to be listening to for the next 90 minutes or so i'll remember my friend topics such as these will affect you while you listen your interest in the unknown the mysterious the unexplainable that is why you have downloaded this podcast and now, for the first time, we bring you the story of that recording on that fateful day. We are bringing you all the words based on only secret transcripts of the miserable souls who host the show. My friends, I cannot keep this topic of the show secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. Let us be impressed by the knowledge of one Derek M. Cook, who will join us on this journey through this episode my friends, can you stand the shocking facts behind the scenes information of the 1994 Disney touchstone film, Ed Wood? Wow, that was uh, that was something. That was uh, that was an intro. Uh, but it's not just the uh, the all-knowing Scottwell we have over there. What what, what name do we give uh, your your other half there? Beautiful and mysterious Tracy Well. Tracy Well, I was trying to come up with a pun on uh, or a take on Vampira, but Tracy Well works. Whatever is all good. Tracyra. <laughs> Tracyra. <laughs> I've been trying to get her to dress like that for eons, and still hasn't worked. Hmm. Well, I did finally dye my hair red. That's true, but that was for another character that I like. <laughs> yeah, we are about to learn a lot more about Scott and Tracy than I think anybody ever really bargained for. Welcome to the show, gang. This is a bonus episode because we hit a particular stretch goal with the Plan 9 by 9 podcast uh, Kickstarter a few years back. I'll probably not say that uh, or, or keep that in. We promised an episode looking at the movie Ed Wood, starring Johnny Depp, directed by Tim Burton. And Tracy Morris has 
agreed to join us for this, partly because Tracy and Scott, you know, they're great alone, but together they're even better. It's like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. You know, one of you is chocolate, one of us is peanut butter. But they've also got an interest in this film because it's a Disney product. They've covered it on previous podcasts before. And, you know, I just thought it'd be fun to talk to my two friends about a movie that really means a lot to me. How are you two doing? We're doing great. How are you? I'm 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 peachy. <laughs> yeah, as Derek said, Tracy and I uh, did have the uh, chance to cover Ed Wood way back in our episode 164 of the Disney Indiana podcast uh, entitled Plan 9 from Disney Indiana. Uh, Tracy and I were joined by uh, Joe Blevins and longtime listeners of Derek's podcast might recognize that name. What was the name that he went by on, on the old MOZ days? Wayne. Wayne yes. something or other. Yes, Wayne Kotke. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and he runs the, uh, it doesn't mean as much now, but back then when he was portraying a zombie character, he was running the blog Dead to Rights. Now, he's kept that blog going, but he's really shifted its focus. It's no longer branded as if he's a zombie. It is now his blog, and he has been running for the past several years now what he calls Edwood Wednesdays, where every Wednesday he or one of his contributors, there's a few of them now, talk about or write about Ed Wood, whether it's a movie, a script, uh, some of the nudie cuties or the, the one real things Ed did toward the end of his life. Uh, just all sorts of different things are covered when it comes to Ed Wood. It really is probably the best Ed Wood resource on the web. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Yes, he joined us to talk about um, this film, Ed Wood, uh, as it, it was a personal favorite of his as well. Now, before we get too much into the movie, um, I want to talk a little bit about our background with the film, if that's all right. I'm curious as to how you two first saw the movie, because we weren't friends at that point. This was early 90s, you know, this was before I got into podcasting, before you guys got into... Was podcasting even a thing at that point? Probably not. If it was, it was very early. Yeah. In fact, at the time, Tracy and I weren't even living in Indiana. So we couldn't have had the Disney Indiana podcast. <laughs> we were living in Michigan uh, outside of Detroit. And I remember uh, reading about, and I don't remember where I actually learned that this movie was coming, whether it was from trailers, um, seeing them on TV. But we uh, saw the trailers and I knew I wanted to see this because I knew who Ed Wood was. And I was a fa fan of Plan 9 even back then. And we had to search it out. It wasn't... It, it had a wide release, but not all theaters were showing it. And I remember having to travel to one of the malls uh, outside of Detroit that we don't normally had visited just to see this film at, in their theater. Now, we were already uh, fans of the Tim Burton films. We'd seen several of his probably most recently at the time this came out, Nightmare Before Christmas. So I think... I think I was vaguely familiar with Ed Wood. I remember in high school reading the Golden Turkey Awards book, mm. and of mm -hmm. course Ed Wood featured prominently in that. I don't know for sure whether I had seen the film Plan 9 from Outer Space. If I had, it might have been the MST3K version. Okay. So when this came out in theaters, I was living in Cheyenne, Wyoming at the time, a town of about 50,000 people home of Frontier Days, the country's largest rodeo celebration. I mean, you can imagine it probably wouldn't get the movie Ed Wood in its two movie theaters, and you'd be right. Uh, it was not something that uh, the distributors, 
sent our way. So I did not get a chance to see it on the big screen. I did not get a chance to see this on the big screen until many years later when I was working um, as a projectionist at the movie theater that was run by the student union when I was at film in film school. When I did first see it, though, it was on video. I was working at a couple of different video stores at the time, and this was back in the days of VHS, and they would send out screener tapes. Uh, you don't really see this much anymore now. A lot of it's all done digitally or maybe on DVD or Blu-ray. But what the distributors would do would send these advanced VHS tapes out to rental stores, uh, retail shops. And at the time, I was working at both a Blockbuster video and a place called Real Collections. Uh, Blockbuster was rental. Real Collections was basically Suncoast. It was selling videotape. And... We got this Ed Wood, and I wanted to see it so bad. And I remember actually even getting in trouble a little bit with the manager uh, at Real Collections because I threw a fit, uh, <laughs> and probably not the most mature thing to do. But I was really upset when the person who had checked out, quote-unquote, checked out the screener tape of Ed Wood from the store to watch you know, before we got the movie in stock, did not bring it back on time. And I was so mad because, man, I wanted to see that movie so bad. <laughs> Finally, I got it, and I ended up watching it with my girlfriend at the time at about 2 o'clock in the morning at her job. She was working at a uh, assisted living facility for uh, individuals with disabilities, and she had the night shift, so she basically just had to live there and be there in case anything happened. Uh, I snuck in she snuck me in and in the living room while all of her clients were sleeping in the back. We watched Ed Wood, and I was just mesmerized. Now, at the time, I didn't know a lot about Ed Wood, knew who he was. But in terms of, like, historical accuracy, I, I didn't know what was real, what wasn't real. It wasn't until years later that I would learn that uh, a lot of liberties taken here. <laughs> a lot. But we'll talk about that. But that's my experience with Ed Wood. Now, since then, I've had it on DVD, and I think I've got it on Blu-ray here now. It is a particular favorite. It's an idealized version of what it would have been to, like to be part of Ed Wood's troupe, I think, at that point. It's definitely an idealized version. And it also, while it is a biopic, more about Ed Wood than Plan 9 from Outer Space specifically. They do touch on some of his other films. His later career is pretty much ignored in this film. It's mentioned very briefly in the end when they are doing the, as you do sometimes in biopics, show a, a, a bit of footage of the character from the film you just watched and have like a, a text on the screen saying what happened to so-and-so. And it's mentioned briefly that he did monster nudie films and that's it. Uh, th this film does seem to cherry pick a lot from Ed Wood's career. There were movies that were produced between Bride of the Monster or movies that were at least planned between Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space. There were things happening that just never got mentioned in the film. I'm glad they didn't go down the, the nudie cutie, the monster nudie route. I don't know if I'd want to see that in a Tim Burton Disney film. I, I kind of agree. I'm glad they uh, didn't touch on it too much either. And I do like the fact that uh, most of the second half of this film is pretty much Plan 9 specific. Well, it's the one that's the most iconic. Well, yeah, yeah it's, it's the most well-known. There's that. And there's also, I, I love, you know, we, we mentioned Tim Burton was the director and you mentioned uh, Johnny Depp playing Ed Wood. But really, the outstanding actor in this film is Martin Landau as yeah. Lugosi. Yes. By far, he is the outstanding. And, and seeing him playing 
uh, Bela is just a treat. It, it, it's worth watching the film just for that. I was so pleased that the year that this movie uh, was eligible for the Academy Awards that it basically did the best at the Academy Awards and that it won every award it was nominated for. Granted, it was only nominated for two, but it was a 100% <laughs> award-winning rate, and one of those awards was Landau as Lugosi. And unfortunately, as was typical in Lugosi's life in Hollywood and how he was treated, they didn't let Landau speak very long about Lugosi or his acceptance speech, or during his acceptance speech at the Oscars. He had to do it backstage, but he did heap a lot of praise on Lugosi backstage, I remember. And... At the time, I didn't know any better. I have since learned and, and heard and, and read in various places that Lugosi was nothing like that. <laughs> he did not swear in front of women. He was not foul-mouthed. He really didn't hate Karloff. Right. But but as a, as a caricature, as a portrayal of this, I, you know, I'm not even say idealized because he's not really ideal, but... And I caricature kind of implies some cartoonish, buffoonish behavior, and it's really not that either. He, he's just a different version of Lugosi, and yeah, he is the standout. Fantastic performance. I did read where his son, uh, Lugosi Jr., did come out at the time saying that his dad never cussed as much as Bela does in this film. So, sure. yeah, there, there's that. And I can overlook that because I get so lost in the role. Uh, of Landau as as Bela. I mean, I I I see Bela Lugosi on screen when I watch this film. I I don't see Martin Landau anymore. And Martin Landau is a pretty well known actor. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And part of it's his a big part of it's his performance. The other part of it is the makeup, which was uh, v Neil and Rick Baker were involved in the makeup uh, of the entire film. I think Baker actually did the Lugosi makeup, if I'm not mistaken. And, I mean, Baker's a monster kid. He's one of us. So he wanted to make sure it looked good, and boy, did it. Yeah. When Rick Baker heard about the this Ed Wood project, he actually was the one that reached out to Burton saying, I have to be involved in this. Oh, wow. And, and joked um, in one of the special features on the Ed Wood DVD he uh, mentions that he would have done it for free. I guess you can say that long after the fact, after the check is cleared. True. Well, you got the mouse behind the scenes. I think the check's going to clear. That's true. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that when it came out, I don't know if a lot of people really knew it was a Disney film, <laughs> technically. I mean, it was Touchstone, but that's Disney's deal. That That is true. I mean, that's the same company that put out Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And one of the other things that I found interesting. Uh, <gasps> going back to Hold on. Does that mean Vampire is a Disney princess? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. I just had a moment. I'm good now. <laughs> One of the things that uh, we found in some of the special features talking about Martin Landau is that bef before he started filming, he actually watched 25 Lugosi films in, in seven interviews be between the years 31 and 56 wow. to learn everything he could about Lugosi. That's awesome. That and see, that's that's respect, man. That's that's him really trying to bring Lugosi to life. And and if you listen to the interviews that he's given since, since he got the award and everything, he's very complimentary about Lugosi and and how important he was. 
And I get that sense from everybody involved in the film, with the exception of one person who really tried to embody at least the spirit or a spirit of the person they were portraying on screen. Yeah, in, in re-watching the film, even some of the side characters, you know, I'm thinking of Jeffrey Jones playing mm-hmm. the Criswell. Oh, yeah. It was, again, phenomenal. And um, I don't know a lot about Bunny Breckenridge, but Bill Murray seemed to pretty much give his all to that performance as well. Mm-hmm. And I do like, uh, we, we did read a story that Ed Wood's widow was brought on set early on in the production and Johnny Depp came out of his trailer at one point in in full Ed Wood garb makeup and everything. And all that Ed Wood's widow said, that's my Eddie. And that's all she said about it. Uh, I had heard this too. Now you're not referring to Dolores, are you? No, no. Okay. You're referring to the Patricia Arquette character. Yes. Yeah. Um, I had read that as well, that he really embraced, I feel like he really embraced the, uh, the role, the performance here with uh, Johnny Depp. I mean, it's easy to look at Johnny Depp now and kind of, I don't know, for me, I get kind of a eh, kind of vibe off him anymore. And and maybe that's not fair. Maybe I'm just kind of over it. I don't know. But back then, I didn't feel that way about Johnny Depp. And I, I was really taken with how he portrayed Ed Wood. And I, I think it's still just as strong of a performance today. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, again, the research that we did previously, we found out that um, Johnny Depp had been introduced to Edward's body of work via John Waters, which makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. And that Depp drew from the performances of Ronald Reagan and Mickey Rooney to help with his characterization of Edward for their sense of optimism. And he studied Casey Kasem for, quote, that utterly confident, breezy salesman quality in his voice. Wow. Now that you say that, I can totally hear it or see it or both. That's one thing I really enjoyed about the portrayal of Ed Wood is you really got that he was invested in his projects. He was and he could charm people to his point of view as well. I mean, his enthusiasm, his passion bled over into the people he surrounded himself with. I never got the impression, and, and I'm assuming this is how it was in real life as well, I never got the impression that he was out to scam anybody. Yeah, maybe getting involved with the Baptist Church was a little questionable and all that, but I always felt like he truly believed that, yeah, this will be the big one, we'll make a bunch of money for these guys, and I won't have to pay my rent this month. You know, I, I never got the impression that he was trying to scam them, you know? There's an earnestness to it. He was trying to bring his dreams, his vision to life. Yeah. I think that's his ultimate goal is he wanted to make movies. And he was trying any way he could to get these visions up on screen. Yeah, I I always wonder, and I think we've talked about this a lot during the Plan 9 podcast, Scott, what would have happened if he had money? What would have happened if just one or two things kind of played out a little bit differently for him? And watching this movie, I, 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 I get that same vibe. I have that same question. What would have happened if? Yeah, I would love to have seen what happened if one of these big producers or whatever had given him the money, these big film studios. There was a lot of money behind this film, obviously. But they still, they did such a good job of making it look like he was struggling for money, if that makes any sense. I mean, there was a lot of money spent on making this film look cheap. <laughs> In a lot of places. 
And and one of the things that we also found interesting is this film did not originate at Disney. I read that too. I read that too. I was going to ask you about that. Tim Burton, he wanted to keep with the source material and film this in black and white. And a film coming out in the early 90s in black and white usually didn't do that well. And the film started off at Columbia. And Columbia was like, no, we're not doing a black and white film. And... Tim was so adamant about making this black and white that he didn't he didn't continue with Columbia. And he actually went to other studios to try to get this made, including Paramount and 20th Century Fox, who both showed interest. But ultimately, it was Disney that um, wrote the check and started it going with a modest 18 million dollar budget. Uh, to start off with. I've always wondered about the relationship between Tim Burton and Disney anyway, um, given how they started. And wasn't Tim Burton fired from Disney at the beginning of his career? Fired might be a little bit strong, but they, they parted ways. Yes, He was an animator for Disney. He did some of the kind of preliminary sketches for films on like uh, the Black Cauldron, Black Cauldron was one of the he worked on. And he did produce that his short film, Vincent, at Disney. Well, and Frankenweenie, too. You know, the right. short film Frankenweenie back then. So, yeah, I've, I've always wondered about that relationship between... Because he does a lot of Disney stuff now. He's all over Disney. Oh, thanks to The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. And in fact, you can even see The Nightmare Before Christmas in the theme parks during the Halloween and into the Christmas season... The Haunted Mansion at Disneyland turns into The Nightmare Before Christmas. The reason I brought up this whole Disney-Tim Burton relationship is I wanted to segue into Nightmare Before Christmas because Nightmare Before Christmas, while I'm, I know you guys love it, and I loved it when it came out, a little over it now, uh, just because I worked in a mall across the hall from a Hot Topic. So I saw a lot of Nightmare Before Christmas <laughs> and just got kind of tired of looking at it, but... I'm grateful for that movie because it further created a divide between Tim Burton and Danny Elfman, which meant Danny Elfman didn't score this film, which I love Danny Elfman. Don't get me wrong. I really do. But I'm so glad that Howard Shore was the one who came in to score Ed Wood because I love the music so much. I don't know if Danny Elfman could have done the same thing. That was something I was thinking about today as well, is how different this film could have been if Burton and Elfman had still been collaborating. I'm with you. I think Howard Shore just nailed the whole 1950s, 1960s, cheap, low-budget sci-fi horror vibe mm -hmm. with his sound. The, the drums, you know, throughout the whole thing, the percussion, the theremin popping in the way it did all the time. Now, I believe Burton and Elfman have since mended. I, I don't know what really happened. I just know that there was tension during Batman Returns and Nightmare Before Christmas. There was something that happened. But yeah, Howard Shore coming in to do this music. Boy, it is just wonderful. It is a score that I've listened to probably more times than I've watched the film. Uh, I, although I will have a... Okay, maybe not. I do have one gripe, and that is that the soundtrack album... As much as I think Jeffrey Jones nails Criswell, it bugs me when I pick up a movie score on CD and I or 
whatever. And there are lines of dialogue from the film in the score. Mm-hmm. And during the uh, opening credit, it's the opening credit music. One of the tracks on the CD album has Criswell's speech in it performed by Jeffrey Jones, which again, cool, but I just want to listen to the music, man. Shut up. <laughs> Do they have that same piece without the voiceover? Honestly, I don't remember because I haven't listened to that CD in a long time. Now that we are in the age of digital and streaming, I haven't run into that as much, but it bugged the heck out of me back in the day, man. You were talking about Chris Wells' character in the film by Jeffrey Jones. I've seen this film many times, mm-hmm. but when we watched it here recently, again, for this review, I had kind of forgotten that Jeffrey Jones played Criswell and seeing him on screen, it was at first I was like, Ooh, little Jeffrey Jones. But then I quickly lost him in Criswell, which is probably for the best considering yes, what's happened exactly. with Jeffrey Johnson since then with his career. And that's probably all we need to say there. And yeah, moving on, whatever. That's not what the people are coming to this podcast for. But what else do we want to say about the film? I, I, I love it. I still love it, even though it's not historically accurate. And I, I just, love this era of Hollywood filmmaking. I I love this era of Hollywood history. And I love that we spent so much time kind of away from the glamour of Hollywood with this, this independent filmmaker, this guy just trying to make a buck, trying to make a story. I can get lost in this film. One of the questions that I ask people uh, when we are on Monster Kid Radio and the Classic Five gets played, that card game that we play on the show, where I, I ask, you know, what movie do you want to live in? I know this isn't technically a monster movie, but I would love to live in that world for a little while. The world of Ed Wood. The movie. Not the real life world. The movie. I would love to be one of his troop. You know, going going in and stealing the um, octopus. That just, that whole evening would have been so much fun. (laughs) I probably would have gotten the motor, though. No, you wouldn't have. This movie got quoted a lot when I was in film school. There were a lot of jokes about, we don't have a permit, run, whenever we were out shooting something. Yeah, I can see that. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. In fact, and I don't know if I still have it, but I had a a big, like, six-foot vinyl banner uh, promoting the Ed Wood on video release that I got from the video store I worked at. And I had that hung in my dorm room. Well, to this day, when I hear the term, pull the strings. Oh, Yeah. It is not from Glenn or Glenda. It's from Ed Wood, where I hear it. Oh, yeah. There are clips on YouTube where people have taken those scenes that Landau is reenacting from those films and put it side by side Lugosi's actual scenes. And while every once in a while the dialogue doesn't quite match, I can't help but hear Landau doing it. I I love Lugosi. People know I'm on Team Bela, but man... And I had forgotten that they call him Bella the entire time in this movie, which is where I picked it up. I got a little bit of razzing on Monster Kid Radio when I kept saying Bella Lugosi, Bella Lugosi, instead of Bela. This must have been where I picked it up, because that's all they say in this movie is Bella. Good point. I hadn't even thought about that. I just kind of wrote that off to Ed's accent. Sure, maybe. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about... Um, yeah. The scene near the end of the film where Ed runs off the set and finds himself in a bar and runs into Orson Welles. Yeah. What did you think of that scene? Well, that never happened. Well, um, obviously it never happened. <laughs> and and I think even in the film, I get the impression that's really only happening in Ed's mind. 
But huh. I, I never thought it was real, even what we were watching. I just figured he was daydreaming or something in the film. But what did you think of Vincent D'Onofrio as Orson Welles, even though Vincent is not speaking the role? I thought it was great. I knew it wasn't Vincent D'Onofrio's voice uh, at the time and, and for a long time. And I don't know if this is true. I never really bothered to look. You guys might know this. The voiceover that was used, was that Pinky? Yes, it's Maurice LaMarche. Okay. Uh, very Pinky uh, from Pinky in the Brain. I thought Vincent D'Onofrio brain, was great. That's what I meant. Yeah, Brain's a smart guy. Um, <laughs> it'd be different, different totally if it was Pinky. Yeah, it'd be totally different <laughs> if Pinky was voicing Orson Welles, which I kind of want to see that now. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear that now. I want to hear him complain about Charlton Heston. Go ahead, Narf! <laughs> they want him to be a Mexican? Yeah, no, I want to hear that. Um, I, I thought he was great. Uh, I'm a fan of Vincent D'Onofrio. I have been for a while. And I thought he did a really good job. And supposedly, and I've not watched it yet, there is apparently a short film somewhere where he does play Orson Welles and uses his own voice. But I've not seen it. I don't know. Have you guys seen this or heard anything about this? No, that was the first this first time I was heard about it. I'll see if I can dig it up. Um, but I thought it was great. Did it just happen in his head? I don't know. It's not something I ever really considered when I watched the movie. I just took it as a straightforward, this is randomly meeting into running into Orson Welles. To me, it was always, this is what happened in Ed's mind during that time. I never thought it was real. Even it wasn't being portrayed as real because it didn't look like a bar that you would find Orson Welles in to begin with, because it looked like Skid Row. So, <laughs> Yeah, I got that impre- impression maybe more from this last viewing than previously. Again, it was kind of just something Ed was, like you said, daydreaming about or envisioning in his own mind. Interesting. Now, was Conrad Brooks playing the bartender in that bar, or was that in a previous scene? I believe that's the scene that he's he cameos in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which I always appreciated as well. And uh, just to kind of go back to what I just said, the short film was from 2005. It's called Five Minutes, Mr. Wells, and it's set in 1949 when Orson Welles agrees to appear in the movie The Third Man. Uh, and he's not happy about it. So <laughs> I'll see if I can track that down somewhere. I bet it's, I bet it's interesting to watch. I really think Vincent D'Onofrio pulls off the look mm-hmm. of Orson Welles really, really well. With help, I'm sure, from V. Neal and Rick Baker. Yes. Oh, I'm sure the makeup, yeah, yeah, I'm sure the makeup had something to do with it. But, no, it looks really good. I I thought he did a really good job. I don't know, and and maybe you guys might know this, I don't know how in-depth you got with your research when you did this before. Did Ed Wood have an Orson Welles fixation or fascination like that? Do you know? I don't know that we found anything that specifically talked about it. But we did find a quote where Tim Burton had gotten his hands on some of Ed Wood's letters, and he commented that Wood wrote about his films as if he were making Citizen Kane. So it wouldn't surprise me if maybe that fixation was something maybe more that Burton himself came up with. Mm. Okay. Now, he did also obviously see in Ed Wood and Lugosi's friendship probably there's some reflection of his own relationship with Vincent Price. Yeah, and I've read that a couple of different places too, although I can't 
imagine Vincent Price being that foul-mouthed about people in front of a lot of people either. No, but that same kind of camaraderie, I don't know, again, not being as familiar with the actual Ed Wood, I don't know if he and Lugosi, how close their friendship was. Gotcha. Yeah, I kind of have to wonder, again, if that was Burton projecting a little bit of his own personal experiences into the character. Yeah, like I said, I've heard this, heard that as well, that it was very much molded or modeled on his relationship with Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that Edward and Bela were friends, that they were close. I don't know if they were that close, where like Edward was the one notified about his passing, uh, that sort of thing. In fact, in, in reality, Lugosi was married, <laughs> and there was uh, the, the real story uh, is that. There were some fans nearby. Um, his wife at the time cleaned up the body before calling anybody because they wanted to make sure he looked presentable because that's what Bela would have wanted, that sort of thing. Uh, whether Ed Wood was notified right away or not, I don't know. Was he at the funeral? I think so. But the funeral was not only attended by Ed Wood regulars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lugosi did not live with a bunch of small dogs. Just a lot of uh, liberties taken with that character. But the relationship, I think, is what's important that we see on screen. And as we learned through the course of um, this Plan 9 podcast, uh, Bela did not live in the house that uh, is featured at the beginning of Plan 9 where Ed filmed him. Right. That wasn't his house. Whose house was it? It was Tor Johnson's house. Did they? I wonder what house they used in the film in Ed Wood. I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't pay that close of attention to the to the home to really kind of notice, but I wonder. It didn't, it wasn't the same house or the same layout as the house from Plan Okay, True. It, the flowers, the roses were in the front, not around the side. Gotcha. Okay. And as we discovered, like you said, through the Plan 9 podcast, the house looks very much the same now. As it did in Plan 9. Yes, we actually found it on, on Google Maps. Yeah. <laughs> Street View, so yes. Yeah, not creepy at all. No, not at all. Not not that we are stalking Tor Johnson or anything. I kind of doubt he lives there anymore, Scott. <laughs> that, was, that was one thing I did kind of wonder is if Burton tried to track down any of the locales, mm. like some of the um, studios. Yeah, that this time now having actually seen in person the studio where Plan Nine was filmed. Oh yeah, I kind of I kind of looked at the shooting places and tried to see if that was where Plan Nine was being filmed in the movie, and it was a different place. It wasn't the same same place because that's right on Route sixty six, and Tracy and I did a Route sixty six trip just uh, uh, back in uh, twenty nineteen, and we. Uh, I have a picture of this, what's the building now mm. where Plan 9 was filmed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that they tried to bring in survivors, um, anybody who was still around, that sort of thing. Uh, some of the locations, not so much, but that might have been asking a lot for the budget they had. They were also probably trying to keep it to look uh, period specific as best they could. And if they use some of these areas now, it wouldn't look like it did 
uh, back in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite moments in the film, it goes back to what we used to reference in film school, and it's when they're out on the city street just shooting the Glenn or Glenda scene. And it culminates with, we don't have a permanent run. But my favorite moment for that is, uh, you want to do another shot for another tape for protection? What's to protect? It was perfect. That was also something else that we would say repeatedly in film school. And uh, that, that moment, it's just one of my absolute favorite moments in the entire thing. It, it's a small moment. It's not a big grand moment. I just, it speaks to me, man. And I don't know why it just does. And I think, again, that kind of gets back to Ed having his own unique vision of what these films were. I don't, the term rose colored glasses kind of comes to mind. Hmm. You know, did, did he really see what was there or did he see what he wanted to see during those takes? Hmm. You know, it would have been interesting if we had seen, the shots in his mind as opposed to what was actually really being done, which would then play a little bit more into the potential fantasy of him imagining meeting Orson Welles at the end, just kind of a a slight disconnect from reality. But then again, that's not really what happened. But I do wonder, you know, did he really think that this is the one I'll be remembered for, you know, with plan nine, did he really think these movies were as gold as, as he made them out to be? I would love to know what he would have thought of this movie if he was still around to be able to see it. Oh, man. Yeah. I wonder. So. And and he would also probably like, there's all this money to make a movie about me. Why can't I have some of this movie to make another movie? <laughs> but what about my movie? Yeah. Now I want Ed Wood to do the Tim Burton biopic. <laughs> oh, man. Who would play Tim Burton? Johnny Depp. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, As long as we can get the actress who's playing Lisa Marie to actively not talk to Lisa Marie during the production of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Which is uh, something I wanted to come back to. So I've read Dolores Fuller's autobiography. She loved Eddie. She loved Ed Wood. She had a wonderful relationship with him. She does not like Sarah Jessica Parker, or as she calls her in the book, Sarah Jurassic Parker. She's not a fan. She felt like Sarah Jessica Parker really did her a disservice in her performance of Dolores, that she reached out to Sarah Jessica to try to connect, and you know the studio made, it, made them available to each other, but she actively stayed away. And because of that, Dolores felt that she was not given a fair shake on screen, that she's portrayed as somebody who barely tolerates Ed Wood as opposed to the loving relationship that they had. And yeah, I could see that. Again, I think that was in service to the story. Yeah. And it's a shame that they couldn't have kept that more realistic portrayal. Yeah. That was one thing going back to this film I wasn't sure I was looking forward to was the treatment of Ed Wood's cross-dressing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. For 1994, I think it was 
relatively progressive. Yeah. They made it clear in the movie that he wasn't gay. Mm-hmm. And nobody really, they took it at, at face value. Okay, you wear women's clothing, you're not gay, fine. They didn't question it. They didn't seem to treat him any differently. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, through a 2020 lens, it can still be a little questionable. But I think, again, thinking back to the early, mid-90s, huh. it was respectful in that context. And the same with Bunny's character. I mean, he was he was played kind of campy, but the character himself was kind of campy. Everything that we've learned about Bunny through doing the Plan 9 podcast, and just independent research because we're interested and fascinated by these people. He seemed to be that 24 seven. That, that's who he was. And I'm real curious because during that end bit where we're seeing, you know, a catch up of a follow up with everybody, you know, what did it would do? What did Tor Johnson do at that point? And I need to double check because I didn't realize this. It's written as if bunny was still alive at the time of the release of Ed Wood. I'd be real curious to hear what he thought of it. Now, he's no longer with us, but I would have loved to have heard his thoughts on the film. Yeah, that might be something worth uh, doing, going and doing a little bit of digging for. See if there's ever anything said or, or recorded anywhere. It'd be interesting to hear. Because that, that's probably the one character in this whole thing, I feel like, that came the closest to being a little caricature-ish. Unless you knew who Bunny Breckenridge was. I could see you coming away from the film thinking, well, that was just over the top and silly. I definitely feel that way because... When I first saw this movie, I didn't know as much as I know now about Ed's troop. And I felt that way. I thought there, there's no way that there's somebody like this. He's just super magnifying on one little quirk of this actor. But no, he was playing him. Everything that I've read, this is how he was. Yep. So. Playing, if you'll upon playing him straight. <laughs> I was trying to avoid that so much. <laughs> I'll make the joke. Um, oh, man. Speaking of characters, you think they're be- being overplayed, but the more you learn about them, maybe they weren't. What did you think of the portrayal of Tor Johnson in Ed Wood, now that you know more about Tor Johnson himself? So now that I know a little bit more about Tor Johnson and, and professional wrestling, because Tor was a professional wrestler and he's played by a professional wrestler in the film. Right. My impression is that Tor Johnson was not kind of slow the way that he's kind of portrayed a little bit in this film, mm-hmm. but that he was and slow mentally and that he you know had a hard time kind of grasping things right away or whatever. And the film doesn't make any reference to Tor Johnson being in other movies for other people. Like he worked with Lon Chaney Jr. in The Black Sleep and John Carradine and all them. Uh, he appeared in a Shirley Temple television show. <laughs> you know, so he did a handful of other things as well for other people. As far as the portrayal goes, I thought it was fun. It was fine. I didn't have a problem with it. And I think George the Animal Steel did a phenomenal job in the movie. Yes. As an actor, I thought he did great. I never thought, and and this includes both the real life Tor Johnson and the portrayal here, I never got the impression that he was slow. My impression of him was always a trouble with the language. Yeah, there's that too. And that's something they didn't even really address in the Ed Wood film is that he was not a native English speaker. Uh, Swedish, right? Yes. I say, did he even get portrayed with an accent? 
in at the Edward movie? Maybe just a trace of one. I mean, obviously, Bela does. Yeah, I don't know. But he's got very few lines to begin with. Uh, I want to go back to Bunny Breckenridge real quick. And I was trying to bring this up before we moved on, so I might change this in the edit. One thing that I found kind of eerie or unnerving about Bunny Breckenridge in this film, and it goes again back to the end credit sequence where we're getting the text on screen telling us what happened to people. The images that were shown are from, I guess, a rap party or a little get-together that they're having uh, earlier in the film, and there are some mariachi singers doing a, a circle around him. And, you know, he's kind of checking out the men, kind of like having a good time, that sort of thing. I found it so unnervingly, uh, I don't know what the word is here I'm looking for. I found it unnerving because Bunny Breckenridge died in a car accident driving to Mexico. Mm. And so to see him in this film, the final shots are him surrounded by Mexican mariachi singers. Just felt well. He it fits off. in. It fits in with the film because there's the scene where he just got back from Mexico because he was supposedly going to Mexico to actually have yeah uh, reassignment surgery, mm-hmm. and it didn't happen. And he comments that well, this mariachi band really helped him, and they're they're there in that scene as well. I, I got the impression that he just kind of followed the mariachi band just followed him around all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to, yeah, I just, I might change the edit on that. So, uh, uh what were we saying toward Johnson? No, I don't let's see. You were talking about the accent and then I derailed everything. Yeah. We were talking whether he was given the accent in the films. And I, I mentioned that he just doesn't have very many lines at all. That's true. That's true. Which is also commented on in the movie. See, he doesn't have any lines. He's acting great. <laughs> He's in, uh, in, in plan nine from outer space. There were a few things about plan nine that I, I wish we had more of. Like we don't spend any time with the Dudley man love character. And I would have loved to have spent some more time there. I would have loved to have spent more time with some of these other people and, and how they were inter, you know, connected to everybody and, and their place and the, the troop. But it's not their story. It's Edward's story. So I get it. I would have liked that. And I would have also liked a little bit more about the building of the sets. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but I would like to have learned, you know, just seen a little bit more about you know, how Ed would have directed the set building, everything on risers and in the cardboard headstones and everything. I just, I would like to have seen a little bit more of that. (laughs) I hate to keep going back to Bunny Breckenridge, but I have to do it again. I was looking him up on Google while we were talking. And you know, when you do a people search, you just type in somebody's name, right? Mm -hmm. I was typing up Bonnie Breckenridge and I was typing up Tor Johnson to see if there's anything about his portrayal in Edward, that sort of thing. And a lot of times you'll get people also searched for so-and-so, right? And I'm seeing the pictures across the top of the screen. Paul Marco, Dudley Manlove, The Amazing Criswell, uh, Mona McKinnon, Tor Johnson, Conrad Brooks, Edward, Bela Lugosi. John C. Breckenridge, the uh, former vice president of the United States from the <laughs> late uh, 1800s. Like, how, what? No, I, 
he was uh, Bunny was a descendant of him, but it's just weird to see like Bill Murray, Lyle Talbot, Ed Wood, and then former Vice President of the United States. <laughs> oh, um, well, we also did a little bit of a digging, looking at uh, Bunny Breckenridge in Wikipedia, okay. <laughs> and he did not um, pass away in the car accident. He didn't die. No, no, you're right. Yeah, no, I, I, I was, I realized I had misspoke there, and I was just going to cut it out in the edit. So. <laughs> You're right. No, he had a serious accident going down there to Mexico because that's what he was going to do. So, um, what else do we want to say? Before watching it for this time around, when was the last time you'd seen this? Probably when we covered it in um, this episode back in October of 2014. Yep. Oh, so it's been a few years then. Oh, yeah. Did it, and it held up for you? Yeah, it's... Right on. I really do recommend watching Ed Wood to anyone that has an interest in this period of history Again, there's a lot that's idealized about it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a stylized biopic. But, you know, like you said, Derek, it would be a fun place to visit. Spend some time in this, this era of Hollywood with this group of eclectic people. They seemed like they had a good time together. You know, they obviously weren't in it for the money. <laughs> They were in it for the camaraderie and the shared vision of being able to make movies. And I believe if you call yourself a fan of Plan 9 from Outer Space, you'll like this film. I think so, yeah. yeah. You owe it to yourself to watch this movie. Just Again, it's fictionalized. It's not real. We know historically things did not happen this way at all as more and more information becomes available, but... It's still easy to get sucked into this world and, and watch them make this movie and the shortcuts they took. And is it in this film that they kind of imply? I can't remember. I might have looked away when this happened. Is it implied that they used paper plates for the flying saucers in this? Isn't there a scene where they're like painting the flying saucers? I remember there's a scene where they set one on fire uh, hanging from strings, but I don't remember. Them. Yeah. Yeah, I do yeah, remember I don't that. Paper plates. I thought that was so cool when, I was, when the first time I saw it. But yeah, just to kind of live in that world and, and to see the filmmaking techniques for what they are on display. I adore the sequence where the cockpit scene is being assembled behind the actor. I do too. And and it's the actor that cracks me up because he's like, Where's the where's the cockpit? Where's the the, the set? It's right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> You're standing in it. it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's another actor that I would have liked to have spent more time with, um, Gregory Walcott's portrayal, you know, just to learn a little bit more, just because I've become more interested in him through the Plan 9 project that we did. So I'd like to know more about that guy. But you can, you can only do so much, I suppose, with the amount of time they had to shoot it and that sort of thing. I'm glad they stuck it, you know, kept it in black and white. I think it wouldn't have worked otherwise. Agreed. I'm glad, I'm glad Tim Burton stuck to his guns on that one. I am so glad Howard Short did the music. Man, I just... And the film is is worth it for Martin Landau's performance. I can't stress that enough. He deserved that Best Supporting Actor. 100%. He is so good in this film. Landau was definitely um, a good actor anyway. I mean, it, it's hard to look at Landau and not say, yeah, that guy's... Got it. He's the man. I love him in the original Mission Impossible and everything else I've seen him in. You know, he's just great. Uh, he really knocked it out of the park here. And his daughter's in the film, too, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, his daughter is uh, the one who was going to invest 
um, and only had enough to really pay for the studio for one day. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, had misunderstood her reference. Although $6,000 doesn't seem like very much. Uh, and that's Juliet Landau, who I just found on Facebook because she has been involved in an Ed Wood fan page group or fan group on Facebook lately, which I thought was kind of cool to see her actually still so many years later associating with it. I'm trying to remember at one of the monster was Conrad Brooks at one of the monster bashes we were at is, was it him or Paul Marco? It was Conrad Brooks. Cause I have his autograph. As far as Ed Wood goes, I've seen some of, I've seen like jailbait, which is not a genre film. But most of my Edward experience is, is strictly in the genre. You know, Bride of the Monster, Night uh, of the Ghouls, Plan 9, things like that. I've seen those, and I've seen Glenn or Glenda. I was just about to say, yeah, Glenn or Glenda, um, which is as disjointed as we're meant to believe <laughs> in Edward the movie. So they got that yeah, right. That's that's a good thing to say about it. <laughs> and it just reminds me of the scene in Edward where he's in the, that vault of films and he's looking at all the stock footage and the guy says how much of it do you want i'll take all of it <laughs> yeah 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 i could make a movie just from this stock footage and then he starts reeling off a movie that actually would have fit right into the b-movie genre <laughs> nobody knows what's going on but it's but it's upsetting all the buffalo <laughs> it's like what <laughs> okay <laughs> Also, uh, the producer of Glenn or Glenda looked nothing like the actor they cast in the film. But I think once you start getting past the main characters, you start taking some pretty big liberties about physical appearances and, and how they matched up to their real life counterpart. Well, yeah. Yeah. If they weren't on screen in Ed's movies, nobody really knows who they look like anyway. Right. Unless you're an obsessive nerd like me. Yeah. Uh, is it required viewing for an Ed Wood fan? I think so. Definitely. Uh, I would even go as far as saying required viewing for a Bela Lugosi fan, but do not expect to see an honest portrayal of your hero if you do watch it. Yep, I, I agree with that. But if you are an Edward fan or if you are a Plan 9 fan, this is required viewing. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I can't imagine. Man, what a wonderful double feature that would be to watch those two together back to back. How much fun would that be? It would be a lot of fun, and I've done it before. <laughs> Have you done? Throw Bride of the Monster in there. Did you do it at home, or did you actually see it in a theater that way? I just did home. I want to see a theater book it that way, though. That would be amazing. I would uh, recommend somebody that had a streaming thing to do it, but it would probably be pretty hard to license Ed Wood. Yeah, um, it's not happening anytime soon on my end. Let's say that I can't imagine Disney would be down for it. Is this part of Disney Plus? Can you get it there? I would have to look. Give yeah, it. We, give we me a have, moment. Yeah, we have the DVDs, so we didn't even go look to see if it was on Disney Plus. And uh, we just looked. At, Ed Wood is not on Disney Plus. Really? Yeah. Huh. I wonder why that is. Same here. I don't think there's anything different on the Blu-ray versus the DVD. I think it's just been upconverted, and that's about it. Well, the DVD. Oh. This is something I was going to ask you guys and gals about this. Well, you guys and gals. This is something I was going to ask you two about. When it was first released on DVD, it was immediately recalled because of a special feature on there. Do you know anything about that? 
Not off the top of my head. So there was a special feature on the original DVD release called When Carol Met Larry. It was about a 10-minute featurette about a transvestite. And for whatever reason, I don't know what the legal issues were, but it was recalled right away. Hmm. And it was released twice with that on there, like once, then recalled. Again, recalled. Most of the versions that are out there now on DVD do not have that. They have everything else, but that's all gone for whatever reason. Not sure why. Now I'm curious if it's R&Rs because we bought the DVD right when it came out. Now, you can supposedly get it overseas, like there's a German release that it's on. But yeah, I'd be curious to hear if it's on there, man. And when I look at websites like dvdcompare.com or .net, excuse me, dvdcompare.net, it looks like the special features are the same uh, between the DVD and the Blu-ray. But now I want to see that special feature, man, that featurette. Maybe they just didn't have all the rights they thought they did. Might have been, yeah. It apparently is still on some of the DVDs that were released, even though it had been recalled and taken off. It's just hidden. You just have to really dig because they they didn't actually remove the featurette. They just removed all access to it from the DVD menu. So if you pop it in like a a DVD ROM or Blu-ray into your computer and open up different files, you may stumble across it as well. Interesting. I guess what I I know what I'm going to do this afternoon. I was going to say, I do that right after I get done here, but I have another recording to do with somebody. You know, we're doing all this. It's probably on YouTube. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) All right. Uh, I know we kind of just kind of... It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electron gun! No! No! Stop him, Dennis! I can't get it! It's jammed! Stop him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. George, possessor of the magic sword. By its powers, I will lead you on the seven great adventures, each one mightier than the others. Together we will go where no man has ever gone, into the land of terror itself, where the Superman of evil is king. Let no man face my seven curses and reach the dragon's lair. 
Together we will dare the demons of the green flame. See the white hot face of the fiery rock. Enter the mammoth cave that closes behind you, where humans are trapped and tombed. Brave the volcanic inferno of the boiling crater. See the miracle of the magic sword. Battle the gigantic ogre. Gaze into the magic pool. See the enchanted beauty, enslaved by the master of the black arts. Meet Sybil, the weirdest witch who ever brewed up a cauldron of spells. I wonder what Sybil's cooking up. Witches of Hecate, black oven black, demons of shame, flesh on the rack. See the attempted rescue from the sorcerer's castle. See the terrors of the dungeon torture chamber. See the terrifying fate of the shrunken people cast under an evil spell by Lodak, greatest magician of them all. See the two-headed dragon of Lodak that no mortal ever faced and lived. Thrilled to the hilt by the magic sword, none like it since the world began. The 2,000-year-old legend Hollywood waited until now to tell. The magic sword. Well, it's that time again, ladies and gentlemen. It's the end of the show. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience and experience. Thanks for giving me something to validate the amount of time that I spend looking at, thinking about, watching and re-watching and researching these movies, giving me a reason to explore these movies. I appreciate it because otherwise, well, let's be honest, I'd be watching these movies all the time anyway because i love them so much and now that you guys and gals are here to love them with me that makes it even better thank you for being part of the monster kid radio community if you want to be involved in the community in a deeper more fulfilling way you can always follow us on twitter just look up monster kid radio over there or you can look up the monster kid radio facebook page or facebook group and you can even join us on discord all of the links to all of this will be in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net where you'll find everything you need to know about this episode. It's all right there. I've put it right there for you, including Amazon affiliate links. So if you want to pick up the movie Ed Wood or any of his movies or even the Ultraman box set for yourself, you can use the Amazon affiliate button. It helps us out because we get like a few pennies per dollar and, you know, it just you're helping Monster Kid Radio. If you're shopping at Amazon anyway, head over to Amazon using one of those buttons because no matter what you buy, even if it's not what you originally went there for, if you go through that link, you're helping us out. What's coming up next week on the show? Well, as of right now, I am scheduled to record with, well, Scott Morris. He's coming back next week. He and I are going to be talking about a sci-fi film. We'll be talking about the movie The 27th Day. In just a few moments, these five, American newspaper man, English bathing beauty, German scientist, Russian soldier, Chinese peasant girl. 
will be given the power to destroy every human being on earth. What will they do? What will their governments force them to do? What would you do? Each of the capsules has a diameter of lethal radiation, which is exactly 3,000 miles. There is then, in the combined capsules, more than enough power to wipe out all human life on your planet. People of Earth, I am an alien from outer space. Don't say anything. I thought you'd never make us. How long are we going to stay here just hiding like hunted animals? You don't think I like hiding, do you? We've been here ten days. We've managed to disagree on every one of them. Actually, we've had all the disadvantages of marriage without any of the advantages. Jonathan, But it's true. It's time I went to bed. Demand is hereby made for the immediate withdrawal of all American forces and civilians on land, sea, and air to within the limits of continental United States on pain of total war. Every human being alive will die unless science solves the riddle of the destruction capsules from outer space before the 27th day. That's me, Klaus. Where are they? I've launched them. Soon the world will be ours. That is a movie that he and I have been wanting to talk about for a long, long time. Every time I bring up having him back on the show, he mentions that movie. Every time he talks about how long it's been since he's been on the show... I mentioned that movie. We've been talking about doing the 27th day forever. So I'm so happy that he and I are going to finally record about it on Sunday. And then you'll get it next week here on the show. If you have any feedback for the show, if you want to talk about the 27th day or Ed Wood or anything that you've heard in the previous 516 episodes of Monster Kid Radio, hey, uh, Monsters in the Machine, let the listeners know how they can do that. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Tango Tangle. That is copyright 2020 the chairman of the boards. You can find them over at chairmanoftheboards.bandcamp.com or chairmanoftheboards.ca or just follow the links over at monsterkidradio.net. However you look them up, pick up their album and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook. Remember to vote in the Rondos this year. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 